This is Alicia Robbins, and this is the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. So what's new? I'm experimenting with a little thing. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how it works. Anyone who's ever been on drugs, a, uh, you alcohol, know, you know, cigarettes, you know me and the and the smokes can't get enough of cigarettes. <laughs> because if anyone knows uh, Ben Rock, he is the number one teetotaler. He uh, he could be a Mormon. You know, he, he really is. He does not. I, of that I stuff. curse a lot. <laughs> he does curse. That's true. He can't be a Mormon. I curse so. a lot. And I'm full of impure thoughts. That, that's true. Anyway, so anyone who's ever been on a Zoom with me, and uh, let's face it, some of the people listening to this podcast have. Uh, Probably know, have, yeah. Know that my Zoom is uh, horribly unstable and annoying to, uh, I'm, I'm annoying to be on a Zoom with. Extremely, yeah. yes. So uh, I had tried getting a, uh, a range extender or a, what do you call it, a, you know, like a, for the Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi yeah, repeater. A Wi-Fi yeah. extender, didn't do shit, sucked. And so finally I broke down and just hardwired my thing into the router. And so I should have as stable a connection as I've ever had from now on. I'm so excited because boy, has it been tough going through our host wraps for the last few weeks with your yeah. terrible internet connection and your chopping out. And I got to say, you know, if you seconds in it seems like it's working great you haven't yeah. uh, you know gone into the weird computer voice mode version yeah. of yourself well I, the I, sort of stephen hawking of uh, ben rock so yeah i want to say like i think it was never my internet connection although maybe it was sometimes i think it was the wi-fi so mm. uh, not that anyone needs to know that but i'm just very excited so Ilya, who is on the show uh, I'm really excited. On the show today is Alicia Robbins. She's a tremendous cinematographer. She's got a new series out right now on Netflix called Keep Breathing, which was my short end a couple weeks ago. And uh, we're going to get to talking to her in just a few minutes. But first up is Close Focus. Ben, uh, what do we have to talk about today? Well, it's uh, an article that our producer, Alana Cody, brought to our attention from the New York Times about uh, Saturday Night Live. The up- Never heard of the New York Times. Or Saturday Night Live. <laughs> or Saturday Night Live. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. The little New York Times and Saturday Night Live. Well, you know, it makes sense that they should cover it, being that it's a New York show. They are they're, yeah, live from yeah. New York, yeah. So basically, they're having the biggest overhaul of their cast since 1995, I believe. They lost eight performers, so... Uh, oh. We already knew Kate McKinnon, A.D. Bryant, Pete Davidson, and Kyle Mooney were leaving. And then now we... Hold on one second. Three more cast members, yes. Melissa Villasenor, Alex Moffat, and Aristotle... You'll have to help me on his last Atari. name. I think it's Aristotle. Atari. Yeah. Atari, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and Chris Redd, because Chris Redd had also just announced on Monday. Like, Which... Honestly, like Chris Redd kind of surprises me because I think he does good work. And I think of him as a relatively new player who hasn't had like a huge breakout character, but he does really good work. I agree. But they're saying it's the biggest turnover since 1995. 1995 would be when like it was the... O.J. Simpson. <laughs> well, no, <I'm> kidding. <laughs> it was like the, the cast that included like Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, David Spade, all those people. And it got turned over. And that's when it became the Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell show. Yeah. Exactly. Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry. Yeah. I mean, uh, just honestly, all of the people who came in in 1995 are like massive comedy icons now. Yeah, that, that show's pretty incredible, the way that they 
continues to reinvent itself and in every era produces just uh, some of the best talent, incredible talent that has has come through that show over and over and over again. And it's kind of amazing to see people at the beginning of their career and, uh, you know, as they move on to to other stuff. Also, it's quite the alumni. Network. Also, I don't want to cast aspersions, but also sometimes head scratchingly misplaced people. I'm not going to say untalented, but like Pete Davidson, who is obviously a very talented performer, didn't really even do anything for like the first four years he was on the show. I was like, how, how is this guy even staying on the show at this point? You know, uh, there's been some sort of behind the scenes and exposés. A lot of the cast that doesn't actually perform sometimes do a ton of writing. They write the show. Every one of those cast members is also involved in writing. So that's fair. Uh, that's fair. And I'm not, I'm yeah. not trying to single out Pete Davidson. There's always somebody in the cast who I'm like, why is this person in the cast? Like, why why is this person a big deal? And then, I mean, several of the people, like Kate McKinnon, has basically been holding this cast up, in my opinion, since Kristen Wiig left. Sure. And there's so many people who, like, just kind of have these little blips on Saturday Night Live, but, of course, uh, go on to do so many other things. And I'm thinking of people like Jay Moore. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, of course. Uh, and then there's some people who kind of are, are brought into SNL later in their careers, like mid-careers. I'm thinking of like Michael McKeon's and yeah. stuff. It's like Colin Quinn. The show is always finding funny people and putting them in situations. And sometimes it works out great. And sometimes it doesn't. One thing that we know for sure about SNL is that it's a grind. They have one week to basically get a lot of their stuff done. Yeah. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And they have this pitch fest where everyone kind of puts their stuff up at the beginning of the week and says, Hey, you know, uh, this is what I want to do. And if it makes the executive producers laugh, it goes forward. And if not, it's uh, you know, if Lauren Michaels thinks it's terrible, it, it doesn't go anywhere. Well, and, and it's, it's interesting too, to think about like Lauren Michaels as a tastemaker. Cause the show goes on the air in 1975, I believe. And with the exception of two seasons where Dick Ebersol took over the show in the early 80s, and that's one of the casts that you can't even name out loud, and, <laughs> and then followed up by the Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo cast. With the exception of those casts and those years, Lauren Michaels has basically run this show the entire time. I mean, it's damn near 50 year run of the show. Yeah, indeed. And I know some people who say, oh, I don't watch Saturday Night Live anymore. I think when they say that, that what they're typically saying is they don't watch it regularly. But I would say that those same people I see on Facebook, either laughing, commenting or sharing the sketches that which, you know, move after the fact to, to YouTube and social media and so much of that stuff. I mean, I can't tell you how many times uh, Lazy Sunday got shared with me. Oh, my and God. That, that, Lazy that was Sunday just a, sort of made YouTube like that. I mean, I won't say it made YouTube, but it was one of the first breakout hits on YouTube. That's for sure. For sure. And I think I could still probably I'll spare everyone, but I could still probably quote back most of it. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I'm very interested to see what they do. The thing about Saturday Night Live and, and actually the remarkable thing about Lauren Michaels is that Saturday Night Live kind of reflects each generation back to itself. So Lauren Michaels, as a seriously old man at this point, is still able to be vital and find the zeitgeist of comedy. And as far as I know, it's really him doing it. It's not like he has people helping him. He's like he's got his hands on the lever. He controls that show. Yeah, it's Lauren Michaels. That's who's so. What I hear you saying is he started running it before he was thirty. My God. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're all failures. You know, when, you, when, when you have a gig like that, you don't necessarily walk away. It also sounds like he has no plans, according to the article. Yeah. No plans to step away. He's you know he's he's still doing it and loving it and. 
uh, I think seems really excited about this latest season. So as long as it keeps working for NBC and the audience, uh, I expect that Lauren Michaels probably is not going to be uh, drifting off into the sunset at the end of the season. Well, I'm very excited. I, for one, am very excited to see who they bring on. And I'm not hipster enough to say that I don't watch Saturday Night Live. I DVR Saturday Night Live every week. I, I would be lying to say I watch every episode 100% all the way through. But what would Hollywood even look like today if it wasn't for Saturday Night Live? So many of our biggest actors came out of it and continue to do so. Yeah, I really can't wait to see what happens next. Well, Ben, we should probably get to the interview with Alicia Robbins. Here it is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Alicia Robbins, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Cool. Thank you. Hey, I've wanted to do this for a very long time. I'm so glad that uh, we're finally getting the chance. You've got a new Netflix series called Keep Breathing. Uh, I do. Yes. <laughs> so tell our, you know, it's been on Netflix for a little while. It was my short end a couple of weeks ago on the show. I, I touted it and told everyone they should go watch it. Um, mm-hmm. For people who haven't done that, give them the quick rundown of what the show's about. So keep breathing. When it first came out, I think that a lot of people thought they were getting into a survival thriller. That's the way that it was publicized. And, and on one um, hand, it is. It, it is a survival it is, thriller. It yeah. is a survival thriller. Um, I feel like it's a little bit more of a drama. It deals with emotional trauma from childhood while being wrapped up in a survival thriller-esque kind of show. But essentially, it's about a high-end lawyer whose plane goes down in the middle of the Canadian wilderness. And not only is she having to survive getting out of this wilderness, but she's also having to deal with that post-trauma of her childhood. So it is a story that's told not only in present tense, but through flashbacks of her life in New York and as well as her her childhood. Yeah, I I think that you summarized it beautifully because, you know, on the surface, it is a really simple show. It's sort of like, you know, the man versus nature. They talk about like, you know, the conflicts that you can have. You can have a man versus man, man versus self, man versus nature. This is it, it seems like it's a man versus nature. But as you get into the show, really the man versus self conflict really starts Mm -hmm. to, to reveal itself. And how much fun is it too? Because it's done in a very nonlinear fashion. And uh, yeah. I, I just kept feeling like it's the peeling of an onion. We get more and more of our, our lead protagonist's life story and, and everything that she's sort of gone through to this point. And at, towards the end, maybe what's to happen, which she's kind of like living out in her, in her head. It's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I, I found it engaging from the beginning to the end. I loved it. So, uh, yeah, I did too. I know I'm a little bit close to it, obviously, but yeah, I I did too. I mean, I've seen it several times now and, and I watched it with my sister, for instance, because she didn't really know anything about it. And we watched it together. And by the end, she was bawling. She was crying her eyes out. So, and and she's not one that's going to just flatter me. <laughs> she's going to be honest with she's gonna, her she's opinion about straight. the work. Absolutely. So seeing her emotional reaction to it was gratifying to know that, okay, even if this story isn't touching everyone, it is touching some people and just in, and also telling that story of survival in a different way. Yeah, it it really is different. And uh, I don't want to give things away because I feel Mm -hmm. like I feel like the joy of this show is going in dark, is not 
knowing mm-hmm. uh, all the details of the story. And I, I feel like it's it's really easy to, uh, I'm not going to say ruin, but to, to reveal key moments of this, which then I think would be less fun for the audience. But I do want to yeah. talk to you about the production. And the production isn't giving away secrets of the story. The production is basically, you know, all the, the you know, the stuff that you had to go through to make this a reality. So I know mm-hmm. you split the show with John Joffin. It's right. Mm-hmm. John Joffin. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, Talk about a little bit of your collaboration process of like, did you know from the beginning he was going to do the first three and you're going to do the second three? Or how did it all come about? How did you get uh, connected to the show? Let's tr- let's yeah, start there. Yeah, that's, that's crazy, too, because, no, I didn't know that he was going to be doing the first half. When I got hired on it, I knew already I was going in for the second half. Mm. So it wasn't a, oh, let's figure out who is doing the first block or the second block. When I was hired onto it, I was always hired onto the second block. Mm. I'm not sure exactly what the producers had in mind in that decision, but I do know that they were choosing people for specific aesthetics and style. And as you could see in the second block, which is episodes four, five, and six, it does take a pretty big turn in the style of the cinematography. So collaborating with, well, first of all, I was just really pleased to know that John Joffin was going to be shooting the first three episodes because he's highly accoladed cinematographer, multi ASC winner. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it, it was like, uh, what? <laughs> okay, so I get, to, yeah, yeah. I get to follow after John in this. Okay. Very cool and also nerve wracking. He's, he's um, your lead in. He's your warm up. So there you go. He's it's so warm up, I know. But on the good side there, he is Canadian. So he has connections in Canada. He has crew that he likes to work with in Canada. So mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. one thing that was really helpful was that he was able to put the team together for that first block. Whereas I'm coming in blind a little bit, working in Vancouver for the first time, I don't have that connection with crew members. And so it was nice to know that at least some of my keys were being chosen by him and that he'd worked with them in the past. That was really comforting to know that I was going to be in good hands. But he, when he went into shooting, it was pretty quick. So mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of time for the two of us to have discussions about the visual style of it. A lot of it came from the showrunners because I was initially having discussions with the showrunners about the style of it. We had a big lookbook that was put together of photographs and things that even that I had come up with as well. And so all that was in this big lookbook. And then of course me just watching dailies from the first block just to kind of get a sense of what kind of lighting, what kind of movement. At the same time though, and not giving too much away, as it starts into the second block in episode four, it does take a shift because she is on the move at that point. I don't think that's giving away too much No, I, I information. don't think yeah, you're, you're fine, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's on the move at that point. She's not stationary anymore. And so we were looking for more movement in the camera work. But luckily he chose the camera and lens system that I think that I would have come around to choose anyway. <laughs> mm. So so that was good. He was doing initial tests with it and I was watching the footage from it. And I agreed upon, yeah, Sony Venice was a wonderful choice for us for the dual ISO. Watching the lens test of the Radiance, the Zeiss Radiance Supreme Primes, it was just really beautiful just with the way the, the flares were on the blue side of it. It's not something that you really see. 
so when he chose those lenses, even though I probably could have swapped things out in my block, I wasn't going to. It was a, a fantastic choice for the piece. And so I stuck with the package that he had chosen. So that was really nice being able to at least just go in on block two with stable crew and really good equipment. <laughs> I mean, that's really key. I mean, you, you got to rely on the technical aspects of what it is you're doing and you even more important, the human aspects. And if you yeah. don't have that going in, then then, yeah, it's uh, either one of those things not being up to par is going to make your job impossible. So, yes, yes. It's, yeah, it's great to be able to walk in and know that you're going to be totally solid from a technical perspective and also from uh, a crewing yeah. perspective. So, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really know about the first block and and well of course by contrast the second block is that the height of the camera the framing uh, when she first ends up being stranded I still felt like the camera was very much uh, either at eye level or below eye level it still seemed like a lot of her power existed she you know mm-hmm. it was like this is someone who's got a lot of capability and we feel like you know she's going to figure out her way out of this and as the show goes on including I'd say mm-hmm. especially when it gets into the second block there's a lot more looking down on her, looking down on her from above, looking down her mm-hmm. from far away. She's more and more isolated, more and more powerless. And I'm sure that's intentional, but it's like, you know, by the time she gets to actually into the water, it's a very different perspective shift. And you get some yeah. of like some POV, but a lot of it is not. A lot of it is like, wow, she is, she's out there. She's alone. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's, it's part of her internal struggle too, of needing to let go. So she is coming from being this super powerful lawyer that has control over everything, all aspects of her life. And then as she's having to fight this wilderness and even her internal demons in her own brain, she's having to let that power go. And and she's having to let that power go in order to survive. So, yeah, I mean, we were looking to make her feel smaller and smaller and in taking that away that power away from her. So that's that's interesting that you actually noticed that aspect of it. Yeah, it, it's terrible when I when I watch movies and stuff because I I watch all this stuff. So it's like a, yeah. I have to like I have to like keep my mouth shut the entire time with everyone around because no one else wants to hear it. I have to like you know bottle it up inside. I'm like okay, when it's over, I want to talk about how they did this. Oh, this reverse shot is so smart. Oh, I love it. It's like no, it's it's terrible. I, I'm like the I have to just shut up the whole time when things are on. And and, and so sometimes you know my family will see me like shifting in my seat and stuff like what's up with him like what is what is he doing and anyway but but beyond all that I, I really awesome. enjoyed that I enjoyed this aspect very much and I think that a lot of camera people it's the same thing though you don't watch you don't watch movies and television the same way that you know uh Joe and Mary in the middle of no, Phoenix watch true. watch movies the same way it's like yeah. first of all there, there's no smooth scanning on first of all that's that's turned off <laughs> Anyway, but it looked to me like you had a lot of input and a lot of creative decisions on framing, because when you're out in the wilderness and stuff, too, and you've got to ground everything in reality. And uh, I I don't know how much of your your work is staged and how much of it is out there, but I have a feeling that framing takes on all that much more importance for what you're doing. I feel like that really is going to be a major aspect about how you're telling a story. Lighting, of course, is big, but framing is uh, going to be how you're moving this character through their through their story, through their world. Can you talk a little bit about the either the process of either storyboarding or finding your frames for Keep Breathing? Yeah. So we had to quarantine for two weeks prior Mm -hmm. to doing anything at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So during those first two weeks that I was isolated in my apartment, I was able to sit 
and have hours and hours of discussions with my director during those two week periods. And it wasn't necessarily always talking about the shots that we wanted to do, but at least just the tone of four, five, and six, colors that we would be drawn to, visual styles. We watched different movies and we'd get back to each other and talk about what we liked about them. So being allotted that two week time period that we weren't really in prep, so to speak, where we could just simmer on what the story was and simmer on what the script was. It was luxurious, honestly. And I, I almost feel like I want a quarantine period for every project that I go into now <laughs> because you're always thrown in just right away into prep and looking at locations and deciding, okay, what piece of equipment do you want here and there and da da da. And, and you don't have that time to just like simmer on it. So having that two week period was really great because then once we actually started to get out and look at these locations, and yes, a lot of it was location work. The apartment work was all on stage. Believe it or not, the interior cave was on stage. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it was a really cool construction that our production designer put together where all the pieces fit together, but we can remove any section to get camera portals. So that was a, a fabulous design. So that was on stage, but almost everything else was on location. Nice. Uh, and so, this is British Columbia mostly? Uh, yeah, so Vancouver area, going up into Whistler area as well. So we had some locations that were a little bit more in remote areas. And for the second block, because we needed such a variety of forests, we had to go to, I think, seven different forests to get all the looks that we needed. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, it was hard to find all those forests, too, because as she's progressing through, she needed to go through different kinds of terrain. So finding all of those locations was actually incredibly difficult. I, I, w I was wondering about that, too. And it's the magic of, of movie making. But quite often to find that ideal location might be a real logistical coordination to get people to like I'm thinking of the, the lake sort of at the beginning, uh, which is prominently featured for the first three episodes, but moves yeah. into yours as well. That lake, I'm guessing that when you turn around, it's not a parking lot there. It's not like right off. Oh, like no, it is not. It is <laughs> that location. I think it, it's a 25 minute off-road vehicle drive yeah. to the top of the trail, which is then only ATVs can get down the trail to the lake. It's, it's a lake that had never been filmed before. I was going to say, I couldn't, I didn't think I'd ever seen it before. It feels very remote. There could have been like the digital matte paintings and stuff to, you know, hide the skyscrapers, but it didn't feel that way. Oh, it, felt, no, it, it felt like no, it was No, that out was there. a real location. That and also the outlook. So when she walks up to that outlook and looks oh, yeah. over, oh, yeah, that was another 25-minute off-road vehicle <laughs> <laughs> to the top of this mountain <laughs> to look out onto nothingness. But going back to your initial question, which was about shot listing and That's right. storyboarding, yeah. we did do not as we didn't shot list necessarily everything. A lot of stuff was de dependent on Melissa's blocking, how she wanted to play the scene, and we would figure it out on the day, which I'm very much used to doing it that way. I don't have to shot list everything in order to get what it is that we need. There are 
several sequences though that we absolutely had to storyboard one being the river sequence that was a a big one because it was a huge undertaking because not only was it drone unit but it's whitewater rafting unit it's cameras position on the side. I want to make yeah. sure I, I understand correctly. You, you say Melissa. You mean Melissa Barrera, who Sorry, plays yes. uh, Liv, the, the the lead actress of, of yes. the, who's Mal- in like every single every single shot of that. that every that single shot. Yeah. We yeah. had to put her through hell. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I mean, she had to go through cold water training because she, I mean, she is swimming in those lakes and those lakes are freezing. They're not warm. And yeah, and she doesn't get to wear an obvious wetsuit or anything either. So it's like she gets to freeze yeah, her butt it off. it is freezing. So she had to go through special underwater and cold water training in order to, to do that without <laughs> hyperventilating. Um, so yes, the river sequence was storyboarded. The little raccoon tree moment. We mm, call it the raccoon sure. tree where we thought yeah. it was bear. That was, that was it, basically any stunt sequence had to be boarded. Um, her chasing the plane, falling into the cave. Uh-oh, I'm giving too much away. <laughs> That's all um, right. You know, you know, these, these are the type of teases I think that people love, though, because it doesn't it didn't give away the story. You just know that these elements are in it. And if you watch yeah. the trailer, if you watch the 30 you second see, Netflix thing, yes. you see all this stuff anyway. It's Exactly. Alicia, let's uh, switch gears a little bit here. We, I know we've talked about Keep Breathing. I think that everyone should go out and watch it. But I want your origin story. <laughs> you know, uh, you oh. and I have known each other a long time. I'm not going to say know. how long, but it's it's a really long time. And the way you and I met was through a gentleman named Jeff Orgill. Uh, Jeff Orgill, yes. who's a, yes. a, d- a dear friend of, of both of ours. This has got to be going back tw- tw- <laughs> almost uh, well, 20 okay. years ago. No, well. <laughs> I think for me a little bit longer because Jeff was actually a production assistant on the very first job that I was ever a a second AC on. And I had actually started off to get that second AC job. Like they were like, well, you know, we've got these other people who want to be a second AC. But if you could work a couple weeks in the production office as a PA, we could see about getting you that job. And I was like, oh, (sighs) man, they're really going to make me like you're going to make me do this other stuff. So sure enough, Jeff and I would PA on different days. Like Jeff, it it was literally like going into a coal mine and he'd like be punching his time card and I'd be like coming out and it'd be like, Hey, who are you? And then, so anyway, that's, that's how Jeff and I met. And, uh, he told me even way back then though, that he had the script called bopping at the glue Mm -hmm. factory. And then Mm -hmm. that thing had been, that thing had been coming around for, for years and years and years. And of course you shot bopping at the glue factory. Yes. Yeah. How did, how did you and Jeff get, get hooked up all those years ago? I'm trying to remember where we actually met. I feel like it was, I think it was just a Mandy ad. I, oh, I think really? it was something wow. like that. Yeah, it, it wasn't a connection through somebody. I think it was a cold call sub like resume submission. And then we met for coffee and we just really hit it off. And this was my second feature. And what was so crazy about it is when we're location scouting, the place we decided upon was the same location that my first feature was shot in. Oh, that's hysterical. I, that's really- I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, I thought, what are the odds? I'm That's my second feature and I'm shooting in the exact same location. This is not fair. <laughs> I don't want all the same location on my reel. But I loved the story so much and I liked working with Jeff. And honestly, I thought it was a a pretty cool little movie. It didn't do a lot. It did some festival runs, but it didn't really do a whole lot. But I actually really liked it. 
Yeah. And, you know, having a second feature under your belt, even if it is takes place at the same location, most people will never know that. I I think that's got to be a really nice stepping stone because, you know, uh, you did both of those, I think, fairly early in your career. That was like pretty. I did. I did. I've always had pretty clear goals about what I need to do to get to my next level. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I graduated AFI, I knew I needed to get a feature and it almost didn't matter what it was. I just needed to shoot one. So the first one that I did was called Punish the Wicked. Nice. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is this wonderful horror movie <laughs> um, that took place in the same location. But it, it, we shot on 16 millimeter, though. So that was actually really cool. That's getting fun. to shoot on film for this horror movie. And uh, I just I knew I needed to get it done. And I think I shot that only a few months after I graduated from AFI. So it was kind of like, OK, good. I got a feature done let's move forward from there. And then I I continue to do these independent features really, really, Mm. really low budget. By the way, to the DBs who work in features, this is the journey. You you graduate from film school or you don't graduate from film school. And then it's what becomes your early work. And, you know, in this time period, which I'm going to say is like mid 2000s or early, you know, the the aughts. Yeah, it's like 2004 ish. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This this is the career path. This is the way that people would go. You know, indie features was the the way it was. You know, I'd say a a decade earlier or so it was like Corman or uh, Red Mm -hmm. Shoe Diaries or that sort of thing that that was like yep. a lot of dps like start and you know and we've had lots of people on the show like that that was their thing but for the mid aughts it was all about the indie features the you know yeah. potential sundance features the festival circuit and clearly you uh you were jumping into the into this realm but oh, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't want to <laughs> jump over too much time here because you did a bunch of television and you've got several series on there on your, your resume but how much of a of a milestone for you was gray's anatomy because you know I, you did a lot of a lot of work on gray's anatomy Oh, my gosh. Well, so it was kind of crazy that (laughs) my last independent feature was called Baby Splitters, and that Mm. was still around a $200,000 budgeted film. And we shot it out of my cargo van. Oh, my God. (laughs) And yeah, so I went from that to my first full time DP job was Grey's Anatomy. Oh, wow. So it was this massive, massive jump. Now, I did work on For the People. So that was a little bit of an in-between because I got to do C camera and additional cinematography. So that's where I really got my feet wet with network television. Mm-hmm. And because that was a Shondaland show, that was my path into Grey's Anatomy. Sure. But my first full-on cinematography TV job was Grey's Anatomy after shooting out of my cargo van. So <laughs> it's kind of like grabbing the brass ring there. That's like, you know, I know a lot of DPs who are still shooting out of their cargo vans. So it's yeah. like, that's, that's really huge. And I know a bunch of people who, who worked crazy. on Grays over the years. Grays, Grays has been mm-hmm. running for a very long time. There's a lot, you know, long. there's been a lot of people who've come through there, but you were not there for a short period of time. You were there for like two and a half, three seasons two, or something like that. Two and a half yeah. years. Yeah. So yeah. I started the end of season 15 doing mm-hmm. a couple of episodes for them and then clearly and then they, they liked asked you. me back full time yeah they asked me back full time to alternate for season 16 so i alternated with their main dp and then their main dp decided to leave at the end of season 16 which bumped me up to the main dp for all of season 17 which was the covid year oh yeah so that was crazy too because we had to rethink everything of how to f- shoot how to keep people safe 
even the camera equipment somewhat had to change how we were shooting just to deal with the whole COVID protocols. And so me going in as a, a lead DP for the first time ever during a COVID year, it, it was it was daunting, but we kept everybody safe. We actually didn't have any COVID cases that year. So that's great. It was, I, I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was Grey's Anatomy. I remember seeing uh, some production stills from the productions that were going on when COVID production resumed. I know everyone had yeah. the shutdown for a while, but when it resumed, the it was a great BTS picture because you could see the camera crew all wearing masks. And then it was a doc, it was a set. I think it was Grey's Anatomy, but they was, it was doctors and none of them were wearing masks. So it was like the, all the surgical masks were on the camera crew and not on on the actors, which is, yes, exactly. It was was kind of, it it was, of course, most of ours were still in mask or what we had were pappers, Mm, which are the clear face with the hooded ventilation system. That was a way that we could actually film the actors would see their face without having a mask on. But that has a whole other set of challenges. It sure Reflective does. Reflective curved surfaces on a face. Oh, fun. <laughs> and hiding microphones inside and all the other stuff that oh. has to be done. Yeah. It's oh, a- yeah. Yeah. It was a really challenging year, but I, I appreciated being able to be a part of that year. So, yeah, it was a huge jump going from my independent film work to television. And after season 17 of Grey's Anatomy... I knew there were some other opportunities that were coming up for something different, one of them being Keep Breathing. So I did end up resigning from my position at Grey's Anatomy to go do Keep Breathing, which is, you know, that that is a, a risky move, honestly. <laughs> Just knowing that Grey's, it is a comfortable situation. I, I could ride my bike to work. Oh, wow. So in L.A., yeah, that's I, that's really saying something, too, because a I lot of know. people, it's more like get up at the butt crack of dawn and then get in a car for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> no, I could ride my bike to work. And and that was such a luxury. But at the same time, not that I'm a young person, but I do feel like I'm still very young in my career. And I just wasn't quite ready to go. Oh, yeah, this is this is what I'm doing now. This is my forever job here. I wanted to try something different. And when Keep Breathing came around, it was like, what? Canadian wilderness? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Yes, sign me up. I'm a camper too. So I love camping. I like being out in the wilderness. So it it was kind of a no brainer for me. I think you made a, a really good decision. You had a really great job. Now, I have to ask you though, has it paid off? Are you are, are you uh, employed? Do you have more work oh, yeah. lined up here in the, on the horizon? Oh, I'm shooting Bridgerton right now. So, yes, I'm doing very well. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're doing just fine. And I'm not going to ask you to give anything away from Bridgerton. This is a leading yeah. question. I already I already knew what you were doing. You and I have talked about it. <laughs> yes. You know, you're a wonderful customer of Hot Ride Cameras as well, too. So, you know, um, I had a little bit of knowledge of, of what you yeah. what you were up to. But uh, I have to ask these questions, too, so you can get, get a chance to plug yourself. So this is, of you know, this, this is the whole thing. So you're, you're working on the next season of Bridgerton. Anyone who's seen Bridgerton has some idea of what that's all about. How, how is it? Do you like it? I'm not going to ask you to give anything away, but do, how's how's the work going? I love it. Honestly, I love living in London. Um, <laughs> it's it's lovely there. The crew is great. We do 10 hour workdays, which is amazing. And I mean, it is just you can get used like to 10 hours. At, I can get used <laughs> to 10 hours. And also just when I step on a set, I mm-hmm. you if you've seen Bridgerton, you see yeah. these locations. These are castles and manors that hardly anyone ever gets to go to, let alone spend a whole day in. And then we're filling it with eye candy of these costumes and hair and makeup. And and I'm sitting there looking at it going, 
I get to shoot this. There's been a few times that I've actually turned to my camera operators and go, hey, guys, I'm shooting this. I'm the DP here. And they're like, I know. Congratulations. <laughs> but I'm like, I think you need to pinch me right now because I, I just can't believe that I'm here. Um, that's what it feels like because it's just the beauty that you're getting to film every single day is it's just unbelievable. It's a show that's got an incredible following. And even when there was backlash uh, against it not being as steamy in the last season, mm -hmm. uh, it still did incredibly well. And it, it, oh, it, yeah. it, it dominated the uh, the conversation and all of the, you know, sort of trades for a period of time, which is like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's great. It's uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm really glad that, uh, that that's working out well for you. So, yeah. Um, and that was and that's a Shondaland show. So. And that that was one thing that I was slightly nervous about when I was leaving Grays. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to burn that bridge with Shondaland because I loved working at Grays Anatomy, but I, I needed to heighten my cinematography skills. So I did make sure that I reached out. I had when I left Grays Anatomy, I reached out to some of the executives that had hired me and mm. just really wanted to be clear with them about that I wasn't leaving because I was disheartened about the work there or anything like that. It's just, I wanted to further my cinematography. And honestly, I think that's what helped me land Bridgerton because I was completely honest with them. And then the fact that I did get to go off and shoot a Netflix show, which Bridgerton is Netflix, made mm -hmm. it an easier transition to be even offered that job at Bridgerton. So, so yeah, I, I do feel like I made the right choice. <laughs> it, it definitely sounds like it. I've got a real fond, I've had the scandal poster on my wall for a very long time because Shondaland's, you know, hot rod cameras yeah. customers. We, we built a little studio for them years ago, but uh, uh -huh. they're such great people, really, really nice yeah. people. I always have nothing but hear the best stuff about them. So uh, yes. it doesn't surprise me at all that they recognized your talent and they want to continue that because it's like, and I think they really get it. You know, they they get it. This industry, people, you know, uh, opportunities come and, and sometimes you, you have to go for them. You just, you just yeah. have to. So uh, yeah, I, I yeah. The that, fact that they didn't begrudge me for that just it made me want to work with them even more <laughs> so yeah dynamite okay so you're on Bridgerton right now <clears throat> is there anything mm -hmm. that you'd like to shoot that you haven't shot before that that you are hankering to I don't know a James Bond movie or something what, what's, what's <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah that sounds great um honestly I do want to get back into features because my last feature was out of my cargo van <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be nice to have another feature that isn't out of my cargo van. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So just just trying something a little bit different, not episodic television or a series, just have a feature somewhere in the middle there. And and of course, I can always come back to television, but I'm kind of hankering to do a feature yeah. again. A hiatus job. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I, I think that you will help manifest it just by kind of like putting it out there into the world. And I think anyone who sees your work is going to want to work with you. So, Alicia, I can't wait to see what you do next, because uh, following your career has been uh, has been a lot of fun. And I'm really glad that we've had the uh, ability to keep in touch over the years and to do this podcast today. This is so much fun. I'm glad that you made the time uh, from your busy schedule to, to sneak in, a you know, a 45 minutes or so for us. Yeah, that, that wonderful. no, this is great. No, I loved it. I loved, I loved getting to talk to you. So thank you for having me. All right. So that was Alicia Robbins. Great to have her on the show. Can't wait to have her on it again. I know that uh, she is doing some incredible work over at Bridgerton right now. And uh, I'm sure that she is going to be a DP to watch. Her career is uh, is on fire. 
you know, we've been doing this long enough that it's kind of fun to watch some of those people start and build and build and build. And, you know, you, you have them on at, not at the beginning of their career, but like when they're just starting to do stuff that's really getting noticed. And then before you know it, they're you yeah, know. on a rocket. Exactly. So it's very exciting. So how's my Internet connection? Nice and stable. It's incredible, Ben. I wish you had gone out to buy the six dollar cable like, you know, two months ago. We, we would have been way better off as it is now. I'm just glad that you got it because because, uh, yeah, you're crystal clear and no weird dropouts. And me having to sit here scratching my head and Ben Katz probably going, whoa, what the hell's that? So. So, Ben, it's bill paying time. All right. I love paying the bills. Well, uh, we got to thank our fine friends over at Aperture. You know, Aperture, a little company, makes lights, makes lights for the uh, motion picture industry. They actually make a new soft box, which is very small. They call it the, the Lightbox 45 by 45 Travel Light. And really what it is, it's a soft box. It's a square soft box. They've got a lot of like Octaboxes and stuff like that, but it's Bowen's mount, so it goes on all of their products, plus pretty much all the other sort of lights out there that are currently using Bowen's mount and, you know, including like uh, knockoff lights and and get this. So it's about 18 inches by 18 inches. That's pretty much it. It comes with a grid. It comes with a couple of different levels of diffusion and it'll set you back $59, <laughs> which is kind of just crazy. The fact that you can buy this box for $59 where if, you know, if you go back just a few years ago, it was probably about 250 to $400 for something equivalent. And now you can throw, uh, you know, one of the Amaran Bowens mount lights in it. One of the, the aperture, like, you know, 60, uh, one of their 60 series, 60 watt lights on there, like the 60 C and holy crap, it's, it can be a sun gun. You can run around with a thing. It, you plop in a couple of batteries and voila, it's a portable magic little box for $59. It's, it starts shipping this week. Probably by the time that you hear this, it'll be on our website for pre-order if we, we don't have it already. And I don't know what we'll do for pre-order. Maybe we'll do like a deposit of a dollar or something like that. But I have a feeling there's a bunch of people out there who could use a small soft box, a light box that's 18 by 18. And I think this is going to fit the bill really well and be popular for a lot of people. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is short ends time again. What is your obsession of the week? What do you got going on? One of those things I was a little bit late to the party on, but I uh, just wanted to let people know that it was going on, is that Cinemark, the theater chain, is currently doing a retrospective of Miyazaki films. Oh, wow. And I know this because on the weekends, if there's like a good kids movie, we'll take my son to go see a kids movie from time to time. And this weekend, there really weren't, you know, like we'd already seen the ones that were out or, you know, we knew League of Super Pets was about to come out on HBO Max. And I was like, what about, look, check it out. Howl's Moving Castle is playing at our Fun. local Cinemark. And uh, I'd never seen it. Oh, really? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And the Miyazaki Festival, I think, is almost over. I know that they're still doing Spirited Away and some maybe maybe one or two others. But I just wanted to let people know. And, you know, the thing is that Miyazaki is one of the greatest animators who ever lived. He's still alive, still making movies. And his work, like, you can't even really compare it to anyone else's. It's so specific to the kind of work that he does. And that's kind of what makes it fun. And Miyazaki stuff is kind of operating on its own logic and its own rhythms with its own style. And the style is really specific to Miyazaki. And the stories are beautiful. And I was also a little afraid that it might be boring for a four-year-old. Not at all. He was completely engaged the whole time. I'm not saying uh, you need a four-year-old. If you are a lover of great art, 
great animation, great storytelling, uh, and you got a Cinemark near you, check it out. Probably, at the very least, you could see Spirited Away before this Miyazaki retrospective is over, and I'm pretty sure it's nationwide. That sounds awesome. I'm a big fan of those Studio Ghibli movies and uh, Miyazaki's work. And I think it's great that you went to go see it on the, on the big screen. That's absolutely the way to see his stuff if you can. Oh, my God. It was amazing. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? Wow. OK, so it's a trend that has been growing, I think, for some time. And uh, I've certainly noticed it. But really, I would say in the last maybe six months uh, to a year, it seems that uh, there's certain affectations that music videos take on that become trends. And this one I'm, I'm particularly cognizant of, which is motion picture equipment as status. For example, there are Astera lights, which were really popular when there was a period of time where you couldn't help but see them in the background of almost every music video. They had these tube lights, they changed colors, they had uh, different pixel mapping, so there was like animations, but there's a lot of music videos with these like LED tubes that were like part of the set design, part of the production. Well, the latest trend, uh, there's a K-pop band called IVE, uh, or it might be IVE, but I'm pretty sure it's IVE. And um, uh, someone shared with me just recently, and I shared it on Facebook, that in this music video, all of this really expensive production equipment, including remote head techno cranes, car rigs, all kinds of like very elaborate, really expensive stuff is being featured in the music video. And the footage from those cameras isn't necessarily used. It's sort of like, look at us, we're on set, we're making a movie. And you can read the name. You can read like, you know, the, the Panther head name off of this remote head as it, as it goes by. It's like it's not that it in the past it would have been considered an accident if you saw, you know, camera equipment creep into the frame like this or if it was something that was sort of like, you know, a second camera. But no, they're using it as like affectation, as like status, as like, look, at we've, we've achieved this certain level. We've got all these, you know, very expensive pieces of gear. And it's almost like, hey, look at us. We've got the cool toys and maybe other people don't have those toys. It's like it's part of the aesthetic. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, at least they're not uh, showing off that they have cheap crappy gear. <laughs> yes, because they could absolutely be going, you know, doing the shitty rigs version where it's like, hey, I got this phone taped to a painter's pole and I'm yeah. dragging it through a puddle. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, that that would be the low rent. Uh, dragging, it th <laughs> dragging through a puddle is like your that's that's that that's like your kryptonite is a it, camera being dragged through a puddle in any way no i i guess what it is is someone on social media has just been mocking the creators who are dragging their phones through puddles and so that's just you know it's become my catchphrase it's become my my thing to like you know uh, hey is it a production or is it someone dragging their cell phone through a puddle so. but what if dragging a cell phone through the puddle was an essential part of the story. You know, it could be, but it, typically the way like the Instagrams and the different sort of socials work, uh, no, it's they're showing what they shot and then they're showing the behind the scenes of them shooting it. And let me tell you, most of these videos, they don't actually have stories. There isn't really anything compelling. It's like, look how cool I am. I made this video with my phone. I'm awesome. That's true. Yeah. And there's a, a YouTube channel called Cinecom.net that I, I, I like the, the videos they do, but they really do go. It, it feels like it's padded all the time. They're like, <laughs> we're, we're showing you how to do this interesting, you know, visual effects technique or whatever. It starts with, let's build a set. Hey, let's follow you to the hardware store. And, and, <laughs> and I don't know, this, this is a very side rant, but like, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it happens to me all the time where I'm like, 
stuck on something in After Effects or Adobe Premiere or something, and I'm like, I know what I'll do. I'll go on YouTube and I'll find, you know, like I'll do a search for how to do X in Premiere and a tutorial will pop up. And the tutorial invariably is like, so here I am. I'm going to open up. I'm going to create a new project. I'm going to make it, you know, 4K. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. Like, hey, everybody, I don't give a shit about any of that. That's like, right. I, I don't give any shits about all the stuff. How do I scrub ahead to the part that actually is important? So, yeah, just just like literally. And you go like, this is an eight minute tutorial and four minutes of it are going to be them just like like and subscribe. And no, let, me well, show, let me just, show you this other stuff. Cool. Do all that shit. No, it's going to be like here. Now we're going to bring in some footage and we're going to put it on a timeline. And it's like, no, 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 no. I don't care. Just get to the thing. The thing that the tutorial is covering. That's all I care about. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't know how to describe these different parts of the social media makeup of content, but I, I think someone really does need to kind of like break down these different parts so we have a way to, to describe them in, in conversation, particularly in like the, the stuff that's that's wasted that prevents you from getting to, to the tutorial. There was a YouTube channel for some people that uh, I rather liked and I did some work with in the past and I don't want to single them out here, but I tried to watch a recent video from them. And they basically spent like the first 15 minutes talking about how they were going to rig muslin over the set and then bounce light into it only to do this entire process and then reveal that they rigged the wrong type of muslin. They re rigged unbleached muslin over the set rather than bleached muslin. And so now the, the colors weren't going to line up right. And I was like, you just spent like five, 10 minutes of this program showing us rigging this up and no one once noticed how it was wrong. And then they said like, oh, well, we're not going to finish today. We're it's going to take too much time. So we'll just come back tomorrow. And I'm like, that's not how the real world of production works. You can't actually just go out and like, oh, look, look what we try to do. I guess Oops. that's not going to work. Whoops. Sorry. Uh, good thing it was a pre-rigging lighting day for them. But man, what a, what a like, yeah. I, and I kind of feel like, Okay, sure. You can reveal that and show everyone how authentic you are and how you make mistakes and how nobody's perfect. But ultimately, at the end of the day, since ostensibly the video is about lighting and it was like how to light, maybe it's not great that you spent so much time rigging up something that wasn't actually going to get used and was a mistake. And then you have to go back and fix. It's like I am ready for the days of editing. I'm ready for editing to make a, a serious comeback in more than just the jump cut because someone said something and they wanted to cut it out. Please, please editing, come come back to the the world of content and social media <laughs> because I don't need to have... Come back editing. Yes, I, I, I really... Come on. It's like editing, we really need that. And the discipline, I think, for, for so much stuff out there is falling by the wayside because you can do it on your phone or your tablet or whatever it is. And now I just feel like that old man complaining about kids old on my man, lawn. Old I know. man yells at cloud. Exactly. Oh, but, but if anyone would like to see the IVE uh, music video, it, it's received more than a hundred million downloads on uh, YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes and the song I believe is called after like. So I think that's what that I, is. I can't wait to watch it. Anyway, so Ben, I think that just about does it for another show that was topical, stuff going on in the world, interview, and then commercial, and uh, you having something uh, interesting about going to see Miyazaki in, in the theater, and me having uh, another old man rant. So, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, as soon as this is over, I'm going to go drag my camera through the mud. Thank you. Please do that. So send me the footage. Will do. But don't edit it. We don't need any editing. Of course not. No, no, no. You want that raw. You want yeah. that shit, right? Ooh, yeah. And if you could do it like in a very, very like underexposed or log sort of format that has almost no color, you know, it's, it kind of reminds me of like people who want to shoot in black and white, but 
they couldn't actually just choose black and white. Instead, they chose the real lack of desaturated gray. So, yeah, I, I, I have a friend. He's a dear friend. He just had his company featured uh, because they're a contractor to Meta and he's a, a small business. And this is a huge deal. And Meta slash Facebook showed up at his office and did this whole like, you know, very professional produced, well, relatively professionally produced a project. And I didn't have the heart to tell him it's like they didn't color correct. It's like they shot in some sort of log and they basically released it in log. And there's a couple other weird things about it, but it's like, oh man, I, all I could say was like, congratulations, you look great. Cause, but yeah, whoever meta hired to do that, it's like, yeah, they, they, they clearly never found the saturation knob on there. Well, you just don't <laughs> understand the metaverse. I guess I don't. I guess I don't. I, I, I hope someone else points it out to them like, hey, could you do the version where, you know, you turn the saturation knob up and people have color in their face and cheeks and everything. Just so. bring it into Adobe Premiere and just hit auto color, you know, like I, I might do I might do that. But most of that color information is probably lost for me now that it's compressed and put to YouTube. And <laughs> that's true. Mostly log grayish. Anyway, so Ben, where can people find you? Where can people find you if they want to track you down? You can find me at benrock.com. That's where all of your Benrock related things can be found. You're never going to get tired of saying that either. That's great. Never. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, or the uh, the usual socials. You can. There's not too many Ilya Friedmans out there, but uh, I'm there. If you go to camnoir.com, you can see the show notes, and there's links to us and everything else over there at camnoir.com. Are there other Ilya Friedmans? There's like two. But yeah, but not in this industry. Have you befriended any of them? Uh, one of them, yeah. There's one. There's a lawyer back east, and we're we're LinkedIn friends or LinkedIn links. I, I kind of yeah. befriended. I found another Ben Rock. He and I kind of got to know each other a little bit on on Twitter. Nice. All right, so let's thank some people, Ben. Who do we have to thank? Uh, first and foremost, Alana Cody, who is setting up uh, awesome interviews. We have uh, a very exciting one coming up. We should also thank Ben Katz who has the unenviable task of taking our various audio sources and uh, making them sound like one cohesive podcast. So thank you, Ben Katz. You're awesome. And uh, let's not forget Kezala Trachi. Kezala Trachi, uh, you know, composer, director extraordinaire, and guest of the show just last week. So yeah, yeah. Did uh, I hope somebody from the, the some listener went to musicbykez.com and sent him some message of any kind. That would be great. <laughs> it would make my day. All right, so Ben, uh, I think that just about does it. What are you going to say to sign off this episode? Thank you for listening. (laughs) Haha, that's your line. That's my line. You stole it. Okay, bye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.